I'd like to welcome everyone to this latest installment of A Few Minutes With. And it is my great privilege today to have the Reverend Dr. Will Williman as my guest. That's a name I'm sure that is one known to many of you. He is a uh, professor of the practice of Christian ministry and the director of the doctoral program at Duke Divinity School. Uh, he's the author of more than 80 books. Uh, he has been named in surveys as one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world. And if I recall correctly, Will, in one survey, you and Henry Nowen were the two most read <laughs> authors by uh, pastors in mainline Protestantism. Uh, so it's a... Yes, what's an honor. <laughs> well, it's great it's a, to be with you, Matt. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad you're here. I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, Paraclete Press has just re-released, I think, your first book, The Gospel for the Person Who Has Everything. And so I wanted... Yeah, it's amazing. It, it, it was my first kind of church book and uh, written as I was uh, ending my first uh, time at my first parish. So it's amazing that it lives again. <laughs> well, I'm kind of curious in reading the introduction, you reflected on the fact that reading it now, uh, I guess 40 years or so on, uh, some of your theology and your preaching has remained consistent, but I'm curious about what the, the tap on the shoulder was that prompted you to, to revisit this book. Well, I actually, I revisited it because uh, Paraclete Press uh, asked about <laughs> republishing it. It was originally published by Judson Press, which was American Baptist Press. But uh, I said, really? Uh, and then when I picked up the book again, and I hadn't picked it up again for, a, I hadn't picked it up for a long time. I, I guess I was kind of, uh, I was impressed uh, that some of the themes that I worked in the book were still uh, worth working and mm -hmm. revisiting. And, uh, you know, I, I saw ways that I think I had changed and grown, but was kind of impressed that, wow, I guess I was working on that from the earliest days of my ministry and I didn't know that. I forgot that. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, the multiple views that you rolled into this because uh, I know it grew out of an article and a series of sermons, but I really appreciated the fact that you approach the, the main themes of this through not only the eyes of the person in the pulpit, uh, but from the person in the pew. You talk about liturgy, you talk about joint uh, outreach into <laughs> the world and answering God's call. And it certainly, as I was telling you before we started recording, as somebody that's in the pulpit often, it certainly turned a lot on its head for me. And I was thinking of a uh, uh, an adapted version of Jesus in the temple where everybody's working away at their temple and Jesus walks in and flips it and goes, no, 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 try this again from, <laughs> from a uh, different perspective. Uh, you talk in one of the first chapters about offering testimony and experiences that you had in... Uh, listening to testimonies, you shared your own at the end of the chapter. I assume that Episcopalians did not grow up giving with testimonials, hearing testimonials or... Well, we, we have, in ministry, we call them call narratives. So it's pretty much... Uh, oh, okay. Pre pretty much a testimonial, yeah. yeah. I did yeah. it several times during my discernment process. Uh, 
And you talk about the fact that a lot of the testimonials you listen to come into the format of people talking about how they were struggling and then turned to God, but how a lot of those don't take into account that there are just as many people that are doing fine when they encounter <laughs> God. And in fact, it's God that turns to them, not us yeah. that turns to God. Could you talk a little bit about that? I, I think um, my memories of my growing up and all were, uh, I, I said a, a lot that I heard from the pulpit and, and then in testimonials were, uh, uh, I had a problem. Uh, I was miserable because of something. And um, I was searching for something and I tried this, I tried that, that didn't work. Uh, but then I found Jesus and uh, he fixed it. Uh, Jesus has uh, now set me on the right uh, foot. And uh, I remember right after my wife and I were married, we were at a, a service where a uh, paid uh, evangelist was going around. And mm -hmm. so um, there was a woman uh, who was the evangelist and she was uh, saying, uh, you know, a lot of girls ask me, why do you always look so good? Why do you uh, just seem to just be a smile on your face and fill with joy? And I tell them, it's Jesus. And uh, Patsy leaned over to me and whispered, uh, a very expensive makeup artist also should be given some credit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so, um, and, uh, you know, so I, I took that as, you know, that's kind of a, a pattern that one discerns in a lot of American Protestantism, say. And uh, so throughout the book, I kind of challenge that. Uh, one of the things I challenge is, is, is it really true that the main thing Jesus is present to do is to solve our problems, meet our needs, fix our lives, and uh, I try to argue, no, I, I think if you look in the Gospels, you look in Paul, uh, Jesus, yeah, is, is God solving our God problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, one, uh, he may not have, he may not be that invested in a lot of the things we think are our biggest problems. Uh, two, uh, I argue, and I don't think, at that time, I was as clear about that as I am now, but uh, I, I think if I were to describe Jesus' mission among us, with us, it's, it's vocation. Mm -hmm. He comes not simply to fix us, uh, but to call us, to employ us, to commission us, mm -hmm. utilize us in his great retake of God's beloved creation. So uh, I think looking back on it, it, it was a book about vocation and how that, uh, uh, and I, I know in the book, I talk, uh, I think I quote William Sloan Coffin, yes. who was kind of a mentor to me in, in my student days, but um, Coffin asking one time, you know, I, I don't understand how you attract people to the Christian faith, appealing to their basic self-centeredness and selfishness, 
Like, what is it you really, really want? Okay, okay. How you move from that appeal to their selfishness to the selflessness of Jesus? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a great question, you know. And uh, my read of the Gospels is uh, 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 Jesus doesn't say, uh, hey, where does it hurt? Uh, look, I, I, I can fix that. Uh, rather, Jesus says, follow me. Yep. And so it's vocation that, and to speak theologically, I'd say, uh, uh, I think American Protestantism, uh, we, we made a mistake when we detached salvation, uh, God's rescue of us, God's justification of us, when we detached salvation from vocation, mm -hmm. God's utilization of us. And so maybe in this book, I'm pleading for us to keep those together because I think I could argue that uh, to be saved by Jesus is to be called by Jesus, that mm. vocation is the way he makes our lives mean more than they would have meant had we not been called. Vocation is the way uh, we are given, uh, we are brought back in line with God and God's work. Well, and you even talk about finding people that, uh, uh, that are baffled by the fact that being a Christian entails more than just coming Sunday morning. There's a certain responsibility that goes along with being a Christian and yeah. being an active Christian. And I'm wondering, uh, earlier this year at the Festival of Homiletics, uh, Katie Hayes, who's the lead pastor of a church in Fort Worth, talked about uh, the experience she has and that others have had that a lot of times it's comfortable people coming in to sit in a comfortable pew and hear comfort preach from the pulpit. <laughs> Comforting preaching. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm wondering if the, the uh, bewilderment about um, uh, vocation and the responsibility that comes with being a Christian uh, comes out of the fact that they just want to stay comfortable or if it maybe mm. clergy are not doing enough to uh, uh, help congregation understand the demands of being a Christian. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good analysis. I, I, I'm afraid of uh, many of us that uh, we, we look upon church as that place. Uh, you know, Jesus said, come unto me. All you who are heavy laden, who are burdened, uh, which sounds like, hey, you want some comfort? Come on, come to me. But then, as you know, Jesus says, hey, my yoke is so easy. My burden is light, to which we say, well, wait, wait a minute, a yoke is what you put around the neck of oxen. Right. Pull uh, a load. Uh, hey, your burden may be kind of light, but a burden is still a burden. Mm -hmm. And and I think uh, maybe I would rephrase that passage to say, come unto me, all you who are so burdened and laden by all that baggage the world puts on your back, like a 30-year mortgage or a three-car garage or whatever, uh, come to me and I will deliver you of those burdens so I can put on your back burdens that are worth having. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, maybe you could define church in light of the gospel as church is where you come to be made 
uncomfortable so that Jesus can comfort you in the peculiar way that he comforts you. And I got to say, one thing I loved about being a pastor was uh, those moments when a lay person reported to me, uh, like I remember the woman who said to me uh, at the end of service as I was shaking hands at the door, uh, I, I've had a hellish week and uh, my boss is in town. I think he's got it in for me. My son is drinking again. And so uh, I came to church this morning seeking comfort and consolation. And I said, oh, well, I hope you found that uh, in my sermon. And she said, not particularly. <laughs> and uh, she said, I came here seeking comfort and consolation only to have God give me an assignment. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's a great, that's a lot of people can say that's how the Christian life for me was. I, I came to Jesus saying, oh Lord, I just can't bear this burden. Uh, you're going to have to help me with it. Only to have the Lord say, I tell you what, uh, I think you're stronger than you are, than you think you are. I'm going to give you another burden. I'm going to give you somebody else's burden. And uh, I was at a church some time ago, and we started out the service. It was a kind of an affluent, all-white Methodist mm -hmm. church. Uh, and uh, the pastor comes out and says, we come here this morning as those who are anxious, as those who feel are under great stress in our daily lives. Uh, come and receive the peace and the consolation of Jesus. Well, while the pastor was saying this, I looked around the congregation and I thought, they look in pretty good shape to me. Uh, <laughs> they look like they're doing fine. They don't look that anxious. Some of them are falling asleep already. Uh, and uh, I think there's a danger in telling well, somebody like me, white, privileged, uh, uh, relatively affluent, their dangers in saying to me, oh, your main interest th that Jesus has for you is that you're so burdened, you're so oppressed, you're so anxious, you're so whatever. Uh, no, I think Jesus, well, I think of a number of parables where Jesus says uh, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a, uh, a rich man who called in all of his uh, servants and said, hey, look, here's everything I own. I'm giving it to you. I'm out of here. Have a good time with it. Mm -hmm. Then he shows back up and he has one question for them. And that is, uh, now, what have you done with what you've been given? Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's about being called by Christ to work for Christ. Well, and this actually moves quite nicely into the, the next section I wanted to talk about. Uh, and it was the one that admittedly as a preacher challenged me the most. And it's where you talked about the, the typical structure of sermons that you often hear that's uh, using the, the scientific approach of you have the problem, Christ is the answer, now go and repent. And you actually flip that where you take Christ is the answer, and you put that the very first thing, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, giving an answer, as you said, to a question that we didn't even know or weren't even ready weren't ready to ask. Yeah, I think I get that probably from Karl Barth, who said, uh, grace always precedes 
repentance. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, that that when one realizes that you are treasured, loved, received by God and Christ, when you when that really comes through to you, that as Paul said, he, he in him was yes, 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 to you. Uh, then you can begin to be honest about all the ways you betrayed that love, mm -hmm. all the ways that you, that you, in a sense, have not believed in you as much as Christ believes in you. And uh, the, uh, uh, so th that, that, that notion that, uh, and I know, I, I remember hearing a sermon by Billy Graham when I was a teenager, and he starts out the sermon by talking about how much aspirin Americans receive, uh, uh, take a year, how many tons of aspirin we consume and tranquilizers and sedatives, et cetera, and all. And, and then, you know, the, he was trying to say, hey, you may think you're all right, but you ain't. Uh, you got a problem. Uh, now, let me tell you your problem. Now, uh, here's how you fix the problem. And... Um, in our own time, I haven't heard many sermons like that lately, but I have heard lots of sermons by saying that, that are kind of like, look at you, you're a racist. Uh, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Uh, you've benefited from privilege that you didn't even know you had. Uh, now, in other words, you should repent. And then, now, here's what you need to do to get yourself back in line with God. No, I think uh, the gospel is more, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Mm -hmm. Repent. Believe the gospel. The first thing is the announcement. Hey, God has done for you what you cannot do. Right. God has come close to you before you come close to God. Uh, we love because he first loved us kind of thing. Well, and, and I know uh, just from the practical aspect of uh, homiletics classes, I know seminary in such a brief amount of time, for me, it was three years. You can't teach or learn everything in three years. Yeah. Is this the type of thing, though, that uh, should be focused on more, perhaps, in homiletics classes? Or is it something that requires uh, more real world and life experience outside of seminary before being able to effectively do that? Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> you're talking to somebody that never actually took a homiletics class, and it shows. It shows. Um, you know, I think uh, what should be focused on in homiletics class first is that I think interesting preaching is preaching that is about is is preaching the gospel, mm -hmm. the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's it's very important for preachers to get as clear as we can about. Well, what is that good news? Uh, what is that gospel? And uh, I got an African-American friend who defines the gospel as, uh, in, in a few words, God is going to get back what belongs to God, no matter how much it costs God to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, not bad. And, and I guess I'm concerned that a lot of sermons that I hear and many that I preach, unfortunately, they're kind of more anthropocentric than theocentric, and mm -hmm. that is their sermons that spend most of their time talking about me, uh, diagnosing me, and then putting forward the prescription uh, for me to do better with me. 
I, I don't hear that much about what God is doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, uh, I've been uh, enjoying worshiping at the National Cathedral online uh, during this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it seemed like just a lot of the sermons, uh, they start out with a biblical text and uh, and usually the biblical text is about something Jesus is doing or saying, mm-hmm. uh, but then very quickly move from that to say, okay, now here, here's here's what you need to be doing this week. Here's, here's how you need to get your attitudes together. Here's how you need to think about this. Here's how you need to feel about it. Here's what you need to do about it. Um, and so I think what homiletics classes need to keep stressing is preaching is talk about God, from God, uh, for God, uh, that it's it's theological before it's anthropological. <laughs> it sounds like, uh, and I know you're you're a great uh, student and, and and scholar of Bard, and that sounds like a very Bardian uh, approach. I took a yeah. a class uh, on Bard in seminary from Kate Sonderegger, and one of the things oh, that's that, wonderful. One of the things she said that Bard stressed was don't open with a story, don't open with a flower, open with the gospel, talk about the gospel, end with the gospel. And it, it sounds, I'm hearing <laughs> echoes of that in, in what you're talking so about. It sounds so she's, and she's such a wonderful interpreter of Bart. Um, yeah, it, it's about God. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember early in, but, but I think we have been conditioned through uh, years of uh, sermons and liturgy's gone wrong and all, uh, to, to, to think church is mainly about me. And mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, like I did a survey with some people about preaching in the Methodist church and we asked lay people, what do you look for in a sermon? And uh, as I remember the, the top response was, I, I want a sermon to kind of show me where I've gone wrong and, uh, and kind of convince me where I ought to go right and uh, and then help me feel motivated to do that. You know, notice anything missing there? <laughs> God. Uh, I also participated in a survey among Episcopal listeners to sermons. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, the top response was something like, uh, I want a sermon that helps me think about things in a new way. To which I said, yeah, it's a trouble, you Episcopalians. You're always thinking, you know, hey, get like Methodists. Just feel a warm tingle down your spine. That's it. Um, well, both of those responses put kind of me, a sermon is kind of what I do and how I react and then how I'm motivated. Rather than, as Bart would say, a sermon ought to be an announcement of what God's up to. Mm-hmm. And then the question for me is, you want to hitch on to that? Uh, you want to be part of that? Uh, but first, it's what God is doing. Yeah. You mentioned liturgy just now and, and talking about that. And I know you talk in this book as well about... Uh, I noticed you, you're one of the few commentators that's picked up this book and mentioned liturgy. And well, of course... Well, I, and I love because you've actually got the graphic in there of the division between the service participants... Yeah. And then you've got God yeah, as the person being talked to, and then you flip it and you've got God as part of the service participants 
preaching out together with the, the God service is the leadership. audience and, and we're the actors. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you, you talk about the fact that, you know, like preaching liturgy may need a rethink. Uh, you know, uh, you talked about, uh, you know, brighter colors and that type thing and how to restore uh, the joyful responsiveness from our liturgy in the congregations. And for those who may be in a parish setting where tradition is dominant, they're concerned about doing anything to upset people that love their tradition. Uh, again, they don't want to be made mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Um, what are some gentle things perhaps that people could do? Because I love the fact you reminded us every Sunday is an Easter moment. And in thinking about certain liturgies, you know, I, I know I'm not cognizant of that as well. And it's already got me thinking of new ways. But for people that, you know, there are some that want to come in and tear down the house and build a new one all at once. There's some that want to make, you know, mm -hmm. hang new shutters and new drapes. What are some of the gentle things perhaps that you think people might be able to, to slowly yeah. work a, a hesitant congregation to that point of getting a much more joyful and less... Uh, uh, I guess yeah, 1928 prayer books. On what, you know, your context. Uh, I know probably not all the listeners to this are Episcopalians, but, uh, uh, you know, I've, there have been some wonderful moments when I have found like Episcopal liturgy right out of the prayer book to be, make me really uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, and one thing I love about the Book of Common Prayer uh, is it forces me to pray prayers that I would never pray mm -hmm. left to my own devices. And I'm not sure my pastor would pray that. Uh, here I'm, you know, the, listening in on the National Cathedral and, uh, uh, and, and I'm thinking, oh boy, this COVID is getting tough and we're still isolated. It's been months and all. I need prayer. Well, in the prayer, the first thing the priest does is say, we pray for Donald, our president. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to pray for that loser. I, I, this isn't why I come to church, uh, to pray for people like that. Well, then the prayer book says, shut up and keep praying. Uh, you know, this is, we're going to teach you how to pray here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love those moments. I'd say one thing. Any liturgy, whether it's in a Pentecostal church or a high Anglican church, uh, it, it needs leaders that are invested in the liturgy, that care, that obviously expect something could happen in the liturgy, that, that are not simply kind of going through the motions as we are sometimes accused. And I think it's also important to say uh, it it ought to be a good show. <laughs> it ought to be a good show for God. It ought to be quality. Give of your best to the master, as mm -hmm. we used to sing. But uh, uh, Anglican uh, Episcopal liturgy can be dull and humdrum, and it can be the most wonderful thing you've ever been a part of, a drama, uh, a participatory drama, uh, a lot depends on the leaders uh, caring about it, and, and all. But it also, uh, I find churches develop kind of traditions of expectancy, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so 
Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm troubled in my own church family, Methodist, that, you know, people, it was all the rage a few years ago, let's do contemporary worship. So we did that singing songs that were about 30 years old. Um, and uh, contemporary meant just kind of the music, the style appreciated by one generation, generally boomers, mine. Mm -hmm. um, liturgy wants to catch up as many people as we can in the thing. Uh, for instance, back to the National Cathedral, one of the great things about them is they have featured some really good African-American musicians mm -hmm. uh, leading in spirituals and all. And I'm thinking, mm, I doubt these Episcopalians sang all this, you know, kind of music before, but they realized we're in COVID. We cannot have a choir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we, we gotta, we gotta adjust. And I think they've adjusted beautifully. And uh, so I, I guarantee because of COVID, we're all going to have to do some thinking. You know, how can we share what we love about our liturgy with people? Well, and I, I would have to think too, and this may be something that can come on the other side of COVID, uh, you know, and I can remember when I was a teenager complaining to friends that I'm going to church, but I'm not getting anything out of it. It was mm -hmm. never about what am I giving? And maybe this is an opportunity uh, to explore liturgy with congregations in a new way where they can find that they're not just observers. They can be very much just as much participants yeah. as people up front. Yeah, uh, I think that that phrase, I, I, I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, one thing, <laughs> you might be the last person to know what you got out of it. Because mm -hmm. uh, Christians always like, you know, gee, I just remembered something you said in a sermon two months ago. Yep. Okay. Uh, but also, you know, it's not there is a deep sense in which it ain't for you. It's for God. Yeah. And we do all this parading around and dressing up and singing and incense and it, we do it for God. And um, we, uh, the joy of, of praising the God who has come to us in Christ and the, um, you're not the test of it. When people say things like, I didn't get anything out of that sermon today. There was nothing there for me. There been, I haven't said this, but I've thought it. <laughs> there have been times when I've thought, you know, I'm sorry you don't have stage four cancer, but the person sitting next to you in the pew does, okay? Mm -hmm. So maybe it wasn't your sermon, mm -hmm. but part of being a Christian is loving your neighbor and sitting through a sermon that is totally irrelevant to you when God is busy ministering to the person next to you on the pew well, get used to it. That mm -hmm. that happens. And um, one last thing, that phrase, I didn't get anything out of it, uh, often means, well, what did you put into it? Mm -hmm. What did you ask? Uh, I know Episcopalians, for instance. I'm, I'm throwing out all these uh, complimentary things to Episcopalians. <laughs> I can be more critical of Episcopalians if you need me to be. <laughs> but uh, I know Episcopalians that wouldn't think of going to church without at least reading all of the assigned lessons for that Sunday yep, out of the scripture yep, and uh, preferably to study them. And they just, they just know, Hey, uh, I can't be hit cold with this stuff. Uh, I, I got to 
have a little context that's helpful to me. And um, the uh, so uh, again, we we do it for God, and um, who invites our praise, even when we're not that good at singing, uh, invites us to uh, respond. And I do think that a lot of worship is so passive. I'm thinking about a lot of Protestant worship where you just do come plop down in a theater-like atmosphere and you watch. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is so misleading with the gospel and that and I like, again, in the uh, Episcopal liturgy, uh, the way, you know, we're always saying, okay, now confess your sin. And I say, I'm sorry, I haven't done anything that wrong this week. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And you say, shut up, just pray it out of the <laughs> Book of Common Prayer. All right, fine. Um, uh, you'd be the last to know when you need to confess. Therefore, mm -hmm. we'll tell you when you confess. And then to pronounce forgiveness and then to say, now, stand up, move forward, hold out your empty hands. Uh, you look like you need a gift. And uh, so liturgy at its best is like dress rehearsal. It's like uh, make-believe, mm -hmm. whereby we, we act our way into believing and that We've all, surely we've had that experience where you show up at church and you're not, God's the last thing on your mind. You're doing oh, yeah. it just out of habit. You don't want to be there. But during it, somehow, during the choir, during the liturgy, as you come to the table, the Holy Spirit just loves to get in there and say, I'll take it from here. Uh, let me mess with this life. Let me get in there. Yeah, it's it's a powerful thing, and it's interesting. And listening to you talk about this, and the uh, the instances where people are looking at what they are or are not getting out of it, but not thinking about what's going on around them. I'm wondering what how people would respond if we started a Sunday service or we got into the pulpit and before we started the sermon, told people as you listen to this, as you participate in this, I don't want you to think at all about yourself. I want you to listen to this with the ears of your friends sitting next to you and see how it might might resonate differently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, a woman was telling me about going in a church after one of the horrible um, events, racial events we had over the past few months. Um, and maybe it's after the George Floyd killing. And uh, she went there and said, our priest tried to relate the gospel to the racial uh, violence in America and um, wasn't doing a very good job. And uh, uh, said, I, I just thought, oh, gee, nice try, but I don't think this is coming across that well and all. And at the end of the service said, I got up to go out. I looked and the woman sitting next to me, there were tears streaming down her face. Hmm. And the woman said, thank God he said it. Yeah. That's why I come to this church. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And wow. so, yeah. Well, 
moving on, there's a there's a great chapter at the end, and it kind of encapsulates everything that you've talked about and that we've talked about today, but it's uh, strength in numbers and how Christianity is a social religion. You talk a lot in the chapter about uh, people saying that I can, be, you know, experience God just as much yeah. in the woods or the fields or at home watching television or something like that. <laughs> you know, in this pandemic time where so many of us are physically separated from one another and we're left with no option but pre-recording and live streaming and that sort of thing. Do you think that this is an opportunity where people are going to recapture that sense of needing to be community and come back? Or do you think that one of the ills that's coming out of pandemic time is that this is just going to further accelerate something that is already happening to some degree among people? I don't know. Uh, I bet both of those things will occur. Uh, uh, I bet some people will say, hey, I actually didn't miss church. Uh, I, I, I tuned in when I could, and, and I got a lot out of it. I, in fact, I tuned into a church that's got better music than my church, and I loved it. Um, that may happen. Uh and I've heard pastors discussing that about maybe we won't be meeting every week. Maybe, you know, gatherings will be less and be more intense or something. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there may be people who say, wow, uh, thank you for doing it on Zoom, but that's not the church. I mean, that's hmm. not what I love. That's not the liturgy. Right. It, it's, we need bodies. We need to see each other. I was just talking to a business person who said, uh, I, I think there may be some people that work at home and all, but he said, uh, generally, the more difficult the conversation that you're going to have in business, mm -hmm. uh, the more is at stake in the conversation. You want to do that face to face and you want to do that with the bodies. And I thought, hmm we're doing some pretty important stuff on in church and uh, we're doing some pretty controversial, challenging stuff. We probably, we ought to do that embodied. And I, I just say to the person who says, well, I, I, you know, I've found I get as much out of church online as I do, uh, uh, as I did when I went to, uh, when we're all face to face, I'd say, yeah, but you still are going to have to deal with the Trinity. Mm -hmm. the, that our God is inherently, constantly social. Our God is extroverted, and uh, the, our God is just constantly reaching out, wanting to make contact, wanting to talk, be in conversation. And I think to worship that God, we're just going to find that we're going to have to, it's a group thing. Yeah. And uh, so... I hope we'll rediscover that. And um, I'm thinking of the Methodist minister that is busy. He's got the communion elements on his table in his kitchen, children, spouse around him. And uh, he says, we're not going to have communion today because uh, it's, it's not communion if we can't be the community together. Right. right. But he said, one day... Maybe in a couple of months, maybe in six months, one day we're going to be back together. And when we are, 
it's going to be a party like you never saw before. Said, you know, we, we, we look at this and just know it's God's promise. I will regather you. Anyway, I thought it was appropriately recognizing what's missing mm -hmm. the body of Christ. Right. Uh, but at the same time, affirming uh, we will get to be church as it ought to be again. Well, and that's one thing that uh, a lot of my colleagues and friends and I have talked about is the fact that it may be June 19th, but it's going to be Easter Sunday. It doesn't matter when it is next year. Oh, that, I love that. That's a great, it's a great way to say it. Somebody was feel like we're still trapped in Lent and never got Easter last year or this past yeah. year. So next year, June 19th, uh, 2.30 in the morning, it's going to be Easter. And uh, yeah, and, and maybe we're learning what a blessing it was to be able to gather Mm -hmm. and to uh, uh, funerals, you know, now part yeah. of the, as you found, I'm sure that part of the real pain is you can't hug people. You can't get them to, you can't do all those things that are too deep for words, mm -hmm. bodily things that you need to do to make it through grief. And uh, so I think Jesus Christ, how does he begin his ministry? <laughs> by assembling a group yep. 12 and that works out with mixed results so then he goes for 72 and you know and uh <laughs> i think uh, so it's part of it yeah but um uh yeah and i'm i think uh maybe we've experienced the depth of isolation and loneliness and uh maybe therefore uh, God will use that to show us what a gift the, mm -hmm. the church is. And, you know, I think this really leads to a great place to wrap up. And it, it's a, a point in your book at the end where you reflect on the difficulty of a journey that you took. Uh, and it was to see the famous uh, painting of the resurrection by Della Francesca oh. in Italy. And how you talked about you know, this journey is long, it's ridiculous, is it going to be worth it when I get there? And then mm -hmm. you talk about seeing it and recognizing that it is. Looking 40 years on from the book mm -hmm. being written uh, and even 10 months into this pandemic time, I want to ask you to, on a personal question to reflect and do you see when you look at the, at the Della Francesca resurrection now, are things, you know, you've talked about uh, in the upper left, the trees that don't have the leaves, the upper right, the, the rooftops of the town with a little bit of springtime greenery coming in. If you look at it now, uh, from all you've experienced over the years and even in this year, do you see that things in it are jumping out in new ways to you? The colors are a little bit different or something else that you haven't seen is coming hmm. up because the journey has continued. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I use that picture, are you surprised? But I use it in my classes at the Divinity School in ministry and when we talk about the resurrection and ministry and mm -hmm. that adds apropos of uh, the conversation just before. Uh, that means that everybody else joins in and says, well, have you ever noticed that? And I said, oh, no, I've looked at this thing a hundred times. I've never noticed that. Wow, thank you. Uh, like a student said, uh, notice all the soldiers seem to be uh, not just sleeping, but they look dead. 
And one of the soldiers is just falling out of the picture. He, he's in an anatomically awkward position. The painters put him in. He's just uh, he, like he's just bowled over by this resurrection. And I said, wow, that has got to be an intentional political statement being made there mm -hmm. about Caesar and Jesus going head to head in the resurrection. And uh, so, yeah, I, I keep going back to that picture. My wife and I on our 50th wedding anniversary got to go back to Borjo San Sepulcro and see the resurrection again by uh, Della Francesca. And it is uh, wonderful. Uh, and I do, yeah, it, it is, and it may be a reminder to us preachers that sometimes the deepest truths of the Christian faith can't quite be uh, said mm -hmm. <laughs> in their fullness. Right. Which maybe you Eucharistically focused Episcopalians would say <laughs> to me, well, if you remember when our Lord came to the end of his ministry, earthly ministry, uh, he gathers with his disciples and he doesn't preach to them. He just says, folks, this is what it's all about. Let me explain it to you in its fullest. Here, have some bread. Take some wine. Mm -hmm. uh, this is me as close to you as I will ever be. Um, yeah. So, well, thank you. Well, I, I, I've got to thank you. And it, this is the, the shameless book plug. Uh, I encourage everybody to buy this. And... Good, I'm not ashamed of your plug. <laughs> Good, Matt. And I, I was joking with Will before we started recording that the next time I read it, I'm going to have to get a different highlighter because so much of this is now yellow. But uh, I encourage you to get it, to read it, whether you're a pastor or a layperson, uh, and sit with it. Don't don't try and read it straight through from beginning to end. Let let the chapters sit because each one is uh, well worth it. And I'm I'm so grateful, Will, that Paraclete reached out to you and, and had you uh, well, revisit this and put it back out for us. Thank you for reaching, and thank you for your far-flung ministry. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and thanks again so much for your time. Uh, blessings for you and your ministry. Thanks, Matt. Take care.